You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Psalms 8 says, When I consider the works of your heavens, the work of your fingers, O God, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of us? And yet, he has crowned us with glory and honor. And I think those verses sum up some of how I feel this morning. A little bit intimidated. I'm not sure if you're supposed to admit that when you stand up here. A bit inadequate, in progress, but mostly really humbled that this great God of the universe would stoop down to participate in my life. And I hope that the way that I relate his story in mine today reflects the sacredness of God's life in us and that it points more to him than it does to me. When my father was 12 years old, he was living in the jungles of Bolivia and he went to a boarding school but was on a break and so he was back home where his parents were serving really in the jungles of Bolivia. And his, one of his siblings had found some used hypodermic needles from a hospital that had discarded them, obviously not well. And he and his friends thought that these might make some great toys and maybe could even be used as a squirt gun. And so he sat with one of his friends and they worked to pull it apart. And as they pulled, his friend pulled and it released and the needle went into my dad's knee, right into the bone. It wasn't long before his leg was immobilized. He developed a high fever. He was very sick and in a lot of pain. And they did not live um, near a hospital, so he had to be moved to another city. He got increasingly sicker. People around the world were praying for him as they heard of what had happened. And one of the doctors told his parents, I think I'm going to have to amputate his leg in order to save his life. And my dad tells this story, and he says that he remembers one night, being in terrible pain after they had received this news, waking up over and over again and hearing and seeing his dad and one of his dad's friends pray over him almost the whole night. And today, my dad has both of his legs and he walks with no limp. And in fact, one year after his accident, in answer to a very specific prayer that one of their supporters had prayed for him, he won a field day race. And that story is a real miracle. And as I sat down um, this weekend to work on this chapel message and think about what I might say today, I thought, I really have some space and time here. And so I sat down with my computer and my Bible and thought, okay, the Holy Spirit is going to speak. And just as I settled in, my daughter came running in the back door, sobbing, in, hardly able to talk. And because she had been out checking on her chickens, and we have chickens because of COVID, like every other middle-class family, we got chickens, seemed like a great idea. And apparently, when left to their own devices, or when they're bored, or when they sense weakness, chickens can turn cannibalistic. And so my daughter had discovered that one of her dear chickens was a victim of the flock. And so I left my Bible and left this quiet time and hugged my daughter and put on some boots and got a shovel and went out and dealt with a dead chicken. 
and then it hit me, right? So I just told you the story of a miracle, and you'll see that this chapel is really not going to be about miracles. And I was thinking in my mind, I need a story that is sort of the contrast to that, the anti-miraculous, right? And there it was, dead chicken. Because most of life is more about dead chickens than it is about the miraculous. Now, in case you don't have chickens, or that story really grossed you out, I'll use some other examples for you. But the point is that these marginal moments, these gritty moments, that's what I really want to focus on today and how I think that God's story in me can best be related. But I'm going to give you the main point of this chapel right now. It's Wednesday morning. I know y'all are tired. So if you're, if you're planning on tuning out, here it is. I'd like you to listen to the rest, but you're welcome for giving you the point right now. If God does not mean something in the undocumented margins of our lives, if our faith isn't woven into the details of who we are and what we do and in the unseen spaces, if God is not the God of our ordinary, then he isn't our God and our faith will not work. My faith will crumble. Your faith will crumble if it is built only on the miraculous and has no voice in the margins. Now, to be clear, Scripture records many miracles. The Old Testament is filled with God's intervention that reveal his power. The wall of Jericho's, Jericho fall down. The sun stands still in the middle of the day during the battle. The widow's oil doesn't run out. Daniel doesn't get eaten by lions. David kills Goliath with a stone. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do not burn in the furnace. And of course, we see this in Jesus, his miraculous birth and the way he lived his ministry, turning water into wine, calling lame people up to walk, blind people see through him, deaf people hear, dead people get up and walk out of tombs. And these are just, of course, a few of the miraculous stories of our faith. And I love these stories. I think they're really important. They inform our faith. And throughout Scripture, miraculous intervention is used to show us God's power and His character and His plan and His love for us. So it's imperative that we remind ourselves of these stories. But I think there are some real dangers to focusing only on the mountain peaks and the miraculous. I think that we are in danger of getting distracted with the high of the fix or the win, or the victory. And this is not just a Christian phenomenon. We can see this in the way that we talk about our lives, our trajectories, and our goals. We want to camp out on the mountaintop where everything is as it should be. The story is told, I'm the hero, the lighting is just right, the angle of the picture captures enough of me and of the mountain. This is social media, right? Social media has built an empire around this little G God of the extraordinary, the amazing, the noteworthy, and the filtered. Social media works because it feeds this insatiable desire we have to be big and to be finished and to be miraculous and above the fray. And we're allured by this magnetic pull of the grand. But if we step back, I think we actually can see that these miraculous high points are the exception and not the rule. Common sense would tell us this about our own lives, regardless of what our social media feeds proclaim. And we see this throughout scripture as well. 
Much of the law written in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is really about the common, ordinary, daily lives of the people. Yes, they're reminded of God's miracles on their behalf, but there are entire chapters written on food storage, cleanliness, how to handle ripped cloth and moles, and what to do if your animal gets into your neighbor's vineyard and eats some of their plants. The biblical narrative is, yes, miraculous, but it's also very common. The kingdom exists and thrives in the in-between spaces, in the ordinary margins of life. And we see this most in Jesus, who literally took on flesh, as John says, and dwelt among us. He came as a human, and he walked with us. Jesus lived days and weeks and months and decades undocumented. So why am I telling you this? And why does this matter? Because I have a feeling that some of your stories are like mine. Not one grand miracle after another, not social media highlights. In our time-bound existence, we encounter pain and suffering, confusion, unanswered questions, loss, things that are beyond our control. And we look and we long for this kind of miraculous intervention. And sometimes it comes, but often we are just in the margins. And yet, this is where I have met the God of the universe in the most real and tangible ways. I grew up in a Christian home, and we lived our faith in public and in private all the time. I was a good student. I was generally well-liked. That did not necessarily equal a lot of dates, but I did have a good number of friends. I was surrounded by family and friends and safety, and I had a gift for running. Now, I'm extremely uncoordinated. If a ball comes flying at me, my initial instinct is like tornado drill position because I just don't know what to do. But for some reason, I could run, and so I sort of stood out here. I won races, and I got good grades, and I loved Jesus. And as I finished high school and headed to college, this was my experience. And I thought, well, it will just be that only on a much grander scale. I'll exist on the mountaintop and I'll be successful and surrounded by friends and I'll be empowered and well-known and I'll win unsafe people to Jesus. And I was so sorely mistaken. I did still win some races and I did get good grades, but I did not go to a university like Asbury, and I was thrown into an environment where I felt completely unmoored. I was lacking in the community around me that I had experienced at home. I was not well known. I did not feel the same safety net beneath me that I had in my years before. I, my views were not the majority. My decisions about how I lived were not winning me popularity points. I had a professor of philosophy who literally had me convinced I may not exist, and I had to take a required um, Old Testament class, and the professor tore apart the biblical, narratives in, the biblical narrative in ways that left me feeling deflated, not doubting, but deflated. And perhaps what was most troubling was that I found myself confronted with myself and not the version of myself that I thought I was or what I had been, but who I really was. 
I felt like I was drowning in self-doubt, in striving, in perfectionism, in anxiety, and in loneliness. And I really wanted the quick fix and the miraculous intervention. And I can tell you that sometimes God did speak clearly or intervene in a way that helped me to see him. But mostly, he just invited me into the season of walking and what felt like sometimes crawling, of self-reflection, of being confronted with things about myself that he wanted to change. Like, was it more important to me what people thought about me or who I really was and what God saw in me? Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, talks about this. I'm going to paraphrase him a bit, but he calls this kind of season an invitation to the ground. He says that we can get so used to the pursuit of the mountain peak that it distorts our view of ourself. But the call to the ground, to the margins, this is where God is, and this is where the real work takes place. Wendell Berry wrote a poem that speaks about this, and here it is. The seed is in the ground. We rest in hope for darkness to do its work. Now, when I first read this poem, I loved those words of resting and hope as a person who tends to strive. That sounded like a great thing. But I did not like the word darkness, hoping for darkness to do its work. I really would prefer light. But as I reflected on this, I realized that this is a story of life in so many ways. The seed is in the ground, and the real work takes place in the dark, unseen spaces, in the dirt, in the messy underground. And what I wanted to be a miraculous unfolding turned out to be an invitation to the ground. The hard work of God's life taking on flesh in me. One of the verses that really began to capture me several years into this season was Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What's interesting about this verse is that it's really about walking. And I think Jesus is most in these moments of walking. But this keeping in step with him is a different kind of way of life. For starters, it's slow and it's learning his cadence, and it's continual. Isaiah 40, 31 speaks of this as well. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Now, one would assume if you were writing this passage that you would leave it, that you would have it flipped, right? That it would, in fact, end in this crescendo of soaring on wings like eagles, or at least running. But the climax of this verse is not the ability to soar or even to run, but to walk. And I believe that that is what God has been saying and re-saying and is still saying to me today, inviting me to learn to walk with him in the margins. So I'd like to give you a few thoughts about what this marginal life might look like and what I think it's showing me. First, I think it provides a framework for us for daily life. So it's not just the grand moments, as I've been saying, it's the moments. 
And there's a really good picture of this in marriage. It's not really the wedding, no matter how beautiful or Pinterest worthy the wedding is, it's not the wedding, it's the marriage that matters. And I have been to beautiful weddings that did not work themselves out into beautiful marriages. And I have been to simple weddings that worked themselves out into a beautiful marriage. The irony is that the presence cultivated in these small moments, when we are faithful, as Jesus said, with a few things, it actually prepares us for the big moments, for the breaking in of God's miraculous provision for us. This is the abundant life, the life that really is life that Jesus calls us to. I believe that this framework also says something about our daily disciplines that they matter, that what you do every day matters, that in these moments you can cultivate God's life in you. And so unsexy things like daily prayer and reading your Bible and being quiet suddenly are very, very important. I also think that this framework gives us the ability and the space to be honest. The margins are quiet, and they strip us of what we can cover ourselves with and distract ourselves with in the more miraculous or curated moments of our life. They bring us face to face with ourselves. It's no secret that this is scary, and we want to avoid it. But I can tell you from experience that this is the best place to be. Because I have found that in the quiet, when God uncovers you, there is nothing he can find in you that he does not have the grace to change in you. And he is so kind in this process. I think along with providing a framework for our daily life, the marginal life changes our perspective. It means that everything is holy and all things are being redeemed. Wendell Berry says, all work done well is prayer. And what he means by that is everything offered to God in excellence is like a prayer and worship to him. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a beautiful poem, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. You see, this marginal life trains us to see where God is working. It gives us ears to hear where he is speaking. Psalms 58, 9 says, Oh, my strength, I watch for you, meaning I have an eye out for where you are at work. When we believe that everything is holy, we look for him everywhere. And this gives us this both and theology that God is in the margins and in the miraculous. He is both at work in the grand and in the mundane. This marginal life also gives us space for questions and for suffering. In fact, it meets us here in these unfinished places. And finally, I think that this marginal life draws us to the margins where other people are. When you are not so concerned with the grand visions of yourself, you can be humble and quiet and listen to those on the margins. 
Now, this is a sermon for another day, and I wasn't asked to talk about this, but I think it has huge implications for how we think and take action around things like racism and systemic injustice. If I have an ear for the margins, then I'm paying attention to the voices of those who are not in the majority. If I see everything as holy and I'm practicing this posture, then I will inevitably begin to see those who have been forced to the margins or find themselves there. And I will be quiet enough to listen to them and allow myself to be changed by them. I started this chapel with a story about a miracle. And I want to end this chapel with a story about some of those same people. So my grandparents, who prayed over my dad and watched him um, be healed, saw many miracles in their life. But when I knew them best, they had retired and were living in a small town in a very modest home. And their home was halfway in between my home, where I grew up, and where I went to school. And so I spent many days stopping at their house in between, um, as I was driving back and forth from home to school. And as I said, college was not a great time for me, and so their home became a real safety net and a place of love, and, and they just fed me in every way. My grandparents exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. They served, they loved, they prayed for others, and they did it very quietly. A few years ago, I got a call that my grandma, who had had Parkinson's for a number of years and was in a nursing home with my grandpa, who had dementia, was probably not going to live very much longer. And so I got the opportunity to drive up and see her. And I knew that as I was saying goodbye to my grandma, that I was really saying goodbye to both of my grandparents. So I met my mom and my dad and one of my sisters and a friend there, and we prayed and we read scripture and we cried and we said goodbye. And I got in my car to drive away and I thought, this is crazy. This is the last time I'm ever going to see my grandparents. And so I pulled back into the parking lot, and I went back into their room by myself. Now, if you have been to a nursing home, you know that they do not smell nice. My grandparents didn't have a lot to begin with, but their whole life had been distilled down to just a couple of possessions that weren't worth anything in a very small room in a nursing home in Indiana. But I can tell you that as I sat in that room with my grandparents, the same sense of God's presence that I had experienced in their home all of those years when I was in college, and the same sense of safety and love and sacredness was so abundant and thriving in that room. And do you know why? Not because my grandparents experienced the miraculous, but because every single day they cultivated a life in the margins. And what they had cultivated could not be taken away, even in a nursing home room. If God does not mean something in the undocumented margins of our lives, if he is not woven into the details of who we are, and what we do and in the unseen spaces, if he is not God of our ordinary, he is not our God, and our faith will not work. May God give us grace to hear his invitation to the margins, and may we live richly here.